All right, good morning. It's great to see you here at Hope and Anchor Church, and uh, I am thankful for each person that gathers with us to worship, and um, I'm also thankful that we have Kyle, who's able to do that, who can play the drums, the guitar, and sing all at the same time. That's a lost art. So Kyle, thanks for that. Um, anyway, like I said, I'm happy to see each of you here today. Um, how about this? Before we jump into God's Word and kind of start unpacking that, let's, let's spend a few moments in prayer. Father, we thank you for your goodness and for your abiding presence. I think sometimes we say, oh God, would you meet us here at church in a powerful way? But the thing is, you're here. You're here. Oftentimes the factor is me. It's, it's us. It's that our hearts are uh, distracted or our hearts are, are kind of hardened. And it takes a little bit for us to enter into your presence, to put, our, to put down our defenses and to uh, just be ready to receive what you would have for us. So God, um, we believe that you are everywhere all the time and your intention is to draw all people to yourself. And so God, I pray that we would be participant in that, we'd be expectant in that, and that this morning you would do a you would, affect in a work, you would affect a work in us. God, grow us, change us, soften our hearts. Lord, especially this morning when we look to Jesus' teachings that are kind of hard, that we don't know exactly how to get our arms around it, how to, how to really integrate that into our lives. And Jesus' teachings about sin. God, sometimes we've been just beat over the head with this, and we've just beat ourselves up over this. So God, I pray that this would be just a place of grace of uh, just uh, the aroma of mercy would be in this place as we hear Jesus' words, knowing the heart from which it comes, a heart that is toward us, a heart that is eager to see us set free and reconciled um, to God himself. So God, it's to you we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, this week we're continuing in our Law and Prophets series, and this is week number five. And today's message is called Theft. Theft. Years ago, I read a novel by Khaled Hosseini called The Kite Runner. The Kite Runner. Has anyone read this novel called The Kite Runner? It is a beautiful and heartbreaking story. If you ever found a story to be this way, it's like both beautiful yet heartbreaking. There's anguish in it too. Um, it's a story about a boy named Amir. Uh, a boy named Amir growing up in Afghanistan. He's living with his father named Baba, or he calls his father Baba. Uh, and they're, they're experiencing a time of turmoil, overthrow, and uncertainty. The Kite Runner, the, the storyline, it follows Amir as he grows up. As he grows up alongside his best friend named Hassan, who is the son of the family servant. It's also the story of how tragic circumstances draw them closer, but ultimately push them apart. If you've read this story, and it's been made into a movie, but I've, as usual, I recommend the book. But um, it, it, it's heartbreaking. It's beautiful, heartbreaking. It's got those like push-pull dynamics of tension that these boys are being drawn together, but stuff happens. Sad, tragic things happen that push them apart in the end. Now, without giving too much away, um, I will say that it is a great book. It's a great novel. If you're looking for uh, a great novel to read, I'd, I'd recommend it. Um, early in the story, Amir's father, Baba, uh, he explains his view on the nature of sin. I distinctly remember this. He's explaining to his son, Amir, what sin is. His take on sin is, is something that has stuck with me all these years later. Uh, Baba says this, Amir, there is only one sin, only one, 
And that sin is theft. Every other sin is a variation of theft. When you kill a man, you steal a life. You steal his wife's right to a husband. You rob his children of a father. When you tell a lie, you steal someone's right to the truth. When you cheat, you steal the right to fairness. There is no act more wretched than stealing. All sin is theft. Now, I appreciate the simplicity and the order of Baba's thinking here. All the sins a person may commit, they stem from a common source. They stem from a desire to take what does not belong to them. All the sins that you may commit, they stem from a wrong desire for you to take what does not belong to you. I mean, think about it. Think back all the way to the Garden of Eden. This was the reaching forward, the turning of the hand of, uh, of receiving freely from God and His goodness to turning over and grasping, grabbing for that which was not ours. All sin is theft. It is a desire to take what does not belong to us. Every one of our sins is a theft of some sort. Be it stealing, be it lying, be it adultery, being murder, being it, uh, be it violence. All sin is theft. You see, Amir's father, his understanding of sin, it, it's helpful to me. It helps me in a lot of ways, but today it prepares me to hear better Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. Because uh, we carry these things with us, and, and sometimes you ever encounter Jesus and He's teaching something that just, oh, I mean, it has a hard time finding its way into, my li into your life. Well, somehow, recalling Amir's father's teaching, Baba's teaching in The Kite Runner, it better prepares me then to sit with Jesus on that hillside in Matthew chapter 5. The Bible makes it clear uh, the Bible makes it clear that we all struggle with sin. All of us. All of us. I don't think anybody here would raise their hand and say, not me. Not me. Well, if you do say that, I've got another sermon about pride um, that I'd like to teach next week. So come back. But I think all of us, if we're honest, would say, I struggle. I struggle with sin. I know the right thing, I, I, the thing I should do, and, and there's something bent in me that that, that distracts me from that, that drives me away from doing that thing, to do this more self-seeking thing I know that is wrong. We all sin in different ways, but we all sin. The Bible makes it clear. We all sin. We've all offended God. We've all broken our relationship with Him by what? By our disobedience, by our rebellious hearts, and by ultimately taking what is not ours. The Apostle Paul, he states this situation very succinctly uh, in Romans 3.23, which all you've probably heard before. I guarantee you heard it this morning, right? For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Paul, the Apostle Paul lays it right out there. Guess what? Guess who sinned? Everyone. For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. So, if you've been following Jesus for more than, say, five minutes, you possess, to some level, to some degree, an innate understanding, an innate awareness of your sinfulness. That we're bent. 
We may not be broken, but we're bent by sin. We're tarnished. We're beset by these sins. Uh, but the thing is, this, this awareness can take a difficult turn, can't it? We want to please God. We want to follow Jesus. We want to do what is right. So our sense, our innate sense of our uh, sinfulness can take a difficult turn and lead us to easily fall into a never-ending cycle of rule-keeping and of sin avoidance. Have you ever found yourself in that hamster wheel? It's like, oh man, I got to get this right. I got to get this right. Rats, did it wrong again. I got to get this right. I got to get this right. It's like in the pursuit of holiness, which is good, we end up playing a sort of sin whack-a-mole. Does anyone ever remember that game? Uh, generational mismatch here, maybe. But some of you remember like at Chuck E. Cheese or, or uh, Showbiz Pizza. Does that terribly date me? Anyway, uh, Inedible Pizza Company. How about that? Whack-a-mole. You remember what this game was? You stood there with a big mallet, and you had all these holes on this table, and you put your quarter in, and, and all of a sudden these like puppet-like moles would stick their head up out of the hole, and what were you supposed to do, Steve? Bash them. So you hit one down, and what happens? Another one comes up, and so you're like driving yourself crazy trying to whack the moles, trying to keep them all down in their holes, because as you hit the moles, you got points, and if you did just good enough, you get a whole bunch of tickets. I think I translate that challenge uh, into my life with God sometimes, and I end up playing sin whack-a-mole. Have you ever found yourself kind of playing sin whack-a-mole? Like, man, if I could just beat the, the, the snot out of these sin moles. <laughs> I'm, maybe I'm stretching this a little bit. But anyway, if I could just do well enough, I would, I would win. I would be okay. So we can end up playing sin whack-a-mole in our pursuit of holiness. So being aware of that, as we gather today with Jesus, on that hillside in Matthew chapter 5, we find Jesus aware of these things and wanting to address it with us. And what does he do? Man, just like normal, Jesus doesn't do what we expect him to do. In our religious imagination, I think we expect Jesus to do things that he just won't do. You kind of expect that God himself, God in the flesh, would come and just clobber us. Right? Like, man, you guys really, really suck. I mean, yeah, I mean, you kind of feel like that's what God's going to say. Like, you guys, man, you're, you're getting an F. An F. You know? But here Jesus comes. He gathers around. He says, hey, listen closely for what I am about to tell you. Jesus comes and he takes the time to not just correct our understanding of sin, but to take it and explode it from the inside out. As Jesus does, <laughs> he doesn't come and put a, a coat of paint on it. He doesn't like say, oh, you're off the hook. You're just fine. You be you. <laughs> no. He sets off a grenade right in the middle of it. He blows it up from the inside out. Doing the opposite of minimizing our sin, doing the opposite of, uh, of brushing aside the consequences of our, our, our theft, our, our poor decision-making, our self-seeking desires, Jesus takes our sin, our understanding of sin, and he elevates it beyond mere behaviors. Jesus says, hey, you know how you sin? And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, I, I, I noticed once I did, yes. Yeah, no, everyone got it. They're like, yeah. It's not about your behaviors. Like, what? He's like, no, no, no. It's not about what you do or don't do. It's about that which lurks inside of your heart. It's about your heart attitude. It is about your, 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 your basic appetites. 
That's where your sin resides. And that's where your sin must be dealt with. So let's look at Matthew chapter 5. Let's look at verses 27 through 30. I know you've been chomping at the bit to hear this passage. Uh, but Jesus says, You have heard the commandment that says, You must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. There are certain passages that have elicited a, a collective gulp, like every time it's been heard. I mean, all the way starting in Matthew up until now, everyone hears this and is like, whoa, that's hard. Are you serious? Could Jesus really be meaning this literally, that we should be you know, poking our eyes out, cutting our hands off? Oh, man. And it's worse because it talks about this as if all the listeners are boys <laughs> and that you're looking at girls and lusting. But this is an equal opportunity uh, uh, indictment. This is about anybody. Girls, if you look at a boy and say, wow, I like that. I want to commit adultery with that person or fornication. You're included too. Jesus is talking to all of us. And just as an aside, there's a difference between adulting and adultery. Look it up. I know it's a fancy old word, but adultery is bad. Adulting is good. But I digress. Now, we hear this passage. Let's look at verse 28 through the very first part of 28, uh, verse 27 through the very first part of verse 28. You have heard, Jesus said, you have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. And then the first three words of verse 28 say, but I say. I don't think we hear this as, uh, as scandalous as this might have sounded back then. Uh, you've heard the scriptures say, you've heard the law of Moses say, but I say. What is going on here? Well, two remarkable things are happening here in Jesus' teaching moment. His little classroom he's got set up here on the hillside. The first thing is this. Jesus draws attention to Scripture by saying, You have heard it said. When he says, you've heard it said, he's implying you've heard it said in the Torah. You've heard it said in the law and the prophets, the words of Moses and the prophets. You've heard it said. But then he goes on to add, But I say... What is he doing here? In adding those three words, but I say, Jesus is not dismissing the Torah. He is not saying, forget about what you've heard previously. Remember, Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Remember, we have to keep this in, in mind, okay? Here's what's happening. Jesus is recognizing the law given by God, and he is placing his own words on the level of that God-given law. He is adding clarity to God's revealed word, and he is injecting his own words uh, and the words of Scripture with life-giving spirit. He's bringing it right into the present, right into the midst of our conversation saying, you've heard it said, we all have heard this, this is no secret, but I say to you this, Jesus is speaking scripture to us in that moment, in all of its power, 
and all of its authority. So let's start there. Let's hear that. Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say. Second thing, second remarkable thing that's happening here, Jesus is expanding his listener's perspective on what sin is. Look at verse 28. He says, But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Oh man, Jesus. Everyone with Jesus that day understood that adultery is a sin. Uh, what is adultery? It's sleeping with someone else's spouse, okay? This was no secret. In fact, it was kind of a, a headliner announcement in the life of Israel, right? It was the seventh of the Ten Commandments. You shouldn't sleep with other people's spouses. It was a commandment. Everybody on the hillside knew that that was prohibited. The issue here, though, is not that the people were unaware of the law. What was the problem? The problem was this. In Jesus' view, they were not obeying it. They were not obeying it. Uh, not just with their bodies, because indeed, uh, I would say statistically in that crowd, it would be statistical of a, any crowd today, there were some who had indeed in their physical bodies committed adultery. There were some there that had, re that had repented of it. There were some that were living with it in sin uh, with a, a concealed... Um, affair or uh, indiscretion going on in their life. Uh, but they were just like us, right? So Jesus says, the problem here is that you're not obeying it. It's not that you don't know it. You know it. You just aren't obeying it. And some of you, yeah, it's not, you aren't obeying it with your bodies. But more importantly, many of you here are not obeying God's command with your minds, you're not obeying it with your minds. While most people in that crowd, let's give them the benefit of the doubt, right? While most people in that crowd were probably not getting frisky with other people's spouses, lust and sexual greed, they were rampant then, just like sin and sexual greed, lust and sexual greed are rampant now. There's nothing new under the sun. We didn't discover uh, lust and sexual greed because of the internet or because of Hugh Hefner, we discovered it because we're human and we're sinful and we want what is not ours. So in that crowd around Jesus that day, sexual or lust and sexual greed was just as rampant as it is today. The InterVarsity Press New Testament commentary explains it this way. Jesus is not challenging his hearers' ethics. The scribes and the Pharisee, they all agreed with, this, with his basic premise, but Jesus challenges their hearts, not just their doctrine. And guys, that's what he's doing to us. He's not challenging your doctrine so much as he's challenging your heart. Many Christians today similarly profess to agree with Jesus' doctrine here, but they do not obey it. If you do not break the letter of the other commandments, but you want to do so in your heart, you are guilty. Okay, so maybe you didn't actually physically do it, but if it's, linked, if it's in your heart, you want to do so in your heart, you're nurturing, you're coddling that desire in your heart, you are guilty. God judges the sinful heart, and the heart that desires what belongs to others, they're guilty. What Jesus wants us to grasp here is that the way to please God and the way to, to honor God with your life is not to simply avoid doing bad stuff, okay? The way to please God, to truly please God, is not to just work down the list like, all right, I didn't do that, I didn't do that, I didn't do this, I didn't do that. All right, all ten, great, I'm good, right? Jesus says, hey, the, the point of your life is not to just avoid doing bad stuff. 
Jesus is warning us about how easily sin invades our hearts. It infects our very being. Not just how, now, it's not just about how sin can corrupt our behavior or can uh, uh, lead us into doing the wrong things with our physical bodies. Specifically, here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus says that if we look at someone with a lustful heart, we've already committed adultery with that person in our hearts. If we look at somebody with a lustful heart, man, we've already committed it in our hearts. You see, as we've talked about before in previous weeks, this is, here's, like I said, this is a hard teaching. I mean, none of us are like, oh, great, this is really comfy. Thanks, Adam. No, everyone's a little bit like, oh, crud. Oh, crud, man, I've been sinning a lot. I'm like a, a sin machine gun. <laughs> I've been doing it all day, every day. Ow. No, everyone's getting a little bit hot right now, like, oh, crud. We're all in trouble, right? We've talked about how God looks past outward appearances. He looks past our behaviors. He looks past our obfuscations and our diversions, and he zeroes right in on our hearts. So at once this is liberating. Okay, it's not, he's not looking at my behavior. That's great. Oh, no. He's actually looking at me. He's looking at my heart. He's looking at who I actually am. It's what God finds going on in the secret places of our hearts that troubles Him most. Do you know that? It's what God discovers uh, in your heart, in those secret places that troubles Him the most. And when He finds unrestrained lust there, He is rightfully concerned. And why is God concerned? Well, here the InterVarsity Press New Testament commentary uh, is helpful once again. Uh, listen to this. Lust is antithetical to true love. Lust is a cheap counterfeit. Lust is antithetical to true love. It dehumanizes another person into an object of passion, leading us to act as if the other person were a visual or emotional prostitute for our use. Ah, oh, that's a hard sentence to even read, but it's so accurate. Lust leads us to act as if the other person were a visual or emotional prostitute for our use. Lust is the mother of adultery. Lust demands possession. If you're a little hazy on why lust was a problem, this should clear it right up. When you're lusting after someone, it's turning them into an emotional prostitute for your use. Ugh. Does that feel problematic? Absolutely. This is what Jesus wants us to get. He wants us to understand. <laughs> He's taking this pretty seriously, isn't he? So what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? How do we take Jesus' instructions in verse 29 and 30, <laughs> his instructions, how do we take those into our hearts and take the appropriate action? Let's read verse 29 through 30. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away, it is better to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Well, I want to press pause here. Before you start poking out eyes and before you start chopping off hands, let's listen closely to what Jesus means here. <laughs> okay? 
We don't have that first aid kit here for this. We don't have the, the necessary supplies to stop the kind of bleeding and uh, pain that would be happening if we were taking this literally. Here's what we need to remember. Let's listen closely to what Jesus means, which is what we have to do. Listen past the letter of the law to the spirit of the law. What does Jesus mean here? Well, begin with this. Know that Jesus loves you. Know that God loves you and is always pointing you toward life. I came that you might have what? Life and have it to the full. Have life abundant and free. This is his mission, his desire. It's not to clobber you over the head. It's to set you free, to introduce you, reintroduce you to life. Also know this. Uh, there is an irony here. I did some research. Poking out an offending eye and lopping off a wayward hand, it does not actually prevent us from sinning. Uh, research shows that humans are available to are, are able to lust even with their eyes closed. Uh, humans can uh, lust even with both hands tied behind their back. I mean, it's it, it's been demonstrated in the laboratory. We don't have to have eyeballs to lust. We don't have to have hands to lust. So clearly, Jesus isn't being serious here. I mean, uh, if you cut off my hands and poke out my eyes, I can lust right with the best of them. I can fall into this sin just as easily as anybody else. So be, be careful here. Don't poke out your eye. Don't chop off your hand because if you do, you're going to be in a lot of pain, but also you're going to have a lot of uh, disappointment because it's not going to fix the problem. You're going to just have one eye missing, a hand missing, and still be ate up with lust. Paul here is helpful. He, ca he captures Christ's intention for us well in Colossians chapter 3, where he instructs us, points us in that right direction in saying, put your sin to death. Put your sin to death. Identify, cut off the sin. Put your sin to death. Look at Colossians 3, verses 1 through 5. Colossians 3, 1 through 5. Since you've been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died and died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. So, verse 5, so put to death the sinful, earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sinful and sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world. Paul provides uh, a helpful peg to hang our intention on. He says, put your sin to death. Put a bounty on your sin and say, I will put my sin to death. I will look to Christ and I'll say, take this. Cut this off in me. And then Paul goes on to provide a good starting point for us then in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. And I like how the New International Version reads here. It says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And get this, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. What does that mean? What does that mean to, 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 to identify and say, ah, oh, this ought not be, to take a thought captive and hold it out in the light of Christ, say, Christ, make this obedient. 
Take this from me. This does not mine. I do not want this. It must be made obedient to you. Now, contextually, this passage is not a perfect fit, but the concept applies. And I think what Paul says here about taking every thought captive is instructive for us. Freedom from lust and obedience to Christ, they both begin as an internal decision, that, but it involves more than simply resolve. It involves more than just trying harder. Because in the life of, with Christ, in your battle with sin, being told to just try harder is not helpful, is it? Man, if it's up to you, we know what you're going to do. I know what I'm going to do. How do we look to Christ? How do, we, how do we set our hearts on this eternal, internal resolve to do the right thing, to honor Christ, but then look to Him to help us do so? To offer these thoughts, these wayward thoughts to Him and say, hey, make this obedient to you. Make this obedient. So, honoring God, now taking every thought captive. I want you to hold on to that phrase. Taking every thought captive and making it obedient to Christ. Honoring God by overcoming lust and adultery in our hearts, it requires us to do some things. And I want to set up the rest of our time together with kind of directional thinking, okay? Honoring God by overcoming lust and adultery in our hearts, it requires us to look inward, outward, and upward. Inward, outward, and upward. I feel like Megan... Hand signals, but inward, outward, and upward. We look inward in discipline. We look outward in accountability. And we look upward in trust. Inward in discipline, outward in accountability, and upward in trust. So discipline. Discipline. Sorry, there's no way around this, right? The life in Christ is a, is a call to live a disciplined life. To decide against ourselves. To, do, to, to make ourselves do things we don't want to do. To tread the path of righteousness when all we want to do is unrighteousness. <laughs> Discipline. We start by taking every thought captive and making it obedient to Christ, making it obedient, subservient to His rule and reign in our lives. Have you ever done this before? Like as a practice, like when you notice something going on, you, say, I'm, you almost envision grabbing that thought and saying, Christ, make this obedient. Make this submit to your rule and reign in my life. Help me in this. Try it. It, it kind of helps. It gives you something to respond with. We go in discipline. We go on a diet of the mind. You know what type of situations, what kind of stimulus triggers your lustful thinking. What is it in your life that stokes your lust? Maybe you shouldn't be on the internet at night when no one's around. Maybe you shouldn't be laying in bed on your phone. Maybe those things are what trigger your lust. Maybe you hang around with the people that just make you think the wrong things. Develop an appetite for Scripture. Spend time in prayer. Cultivate spiritual habits that lead to Christian maturity, but even more than that, that lead to mastery of yourself. We don't talk about discipline much in our culture because we like comfort and we like uh, self-identity and we just like to uh, do, do whatever we want. But the way of following Jesus is a life of discipline and it's, it's choosing against yourself. It's pursuing Christian maturity, which means mastery of yourself. Mastery of, your, of flesh in the light of Christ under His Lordship. And that's hard to sell, but it's the path to freedom. We train our eyes to stop lingering on the ladies... We train our eyes to stop ogling the guys, okay? 
very practical, very uh, daily responses that we ingrain in ourselves. When we find our eyes wandering, we see a girl walk past and we want to look them up and down, we just don't do it. We, we, we do not look. We, we starve our attention, that, that, that uh, attention-seeking part of our brain. Okay, guys, girls alike. Discipline. I'm working on now a whole series on Christian spiritual discipline, so we'll get to this next year, but discipline. The second thing, so inward and discipline, outward and accountability. Let me tell you this right up front. It is foolish to try to fight this battle on your own. It is foolish to try to get this right all by yourself. Has it worked in the past? Probably not, not for very long. There is a reason that God has placed you in a church family. I've often said that the call to follow Christ is the call into community. I mean, we must practice these things that we're called to in the midst of others, uh, in the midst of some people that make that difficult, right? Uh, the call to follow Christ is a call into community. There's a reason God has placed you in a church family. Why? We need each other. We need fellow travelers uh, to support us, to encourage us, to reinforce us, and to correct us. We need people who are, uh, that we are unguarded around enough for them to come and poke us in the sternum and say, what are you doing? Do you see what you're doing? I'm very troubled by what you're doing here. I mean, we don't want those people in our life, but man, we need them. And this is what the church family, the fellowship of believers, is to be for us, to support us, encourage us, reinforce us, and correct us. You have probably lived long enough and been defeated often enough in your efforts to overcome lust to realize that the answer does not lie within yourself. The answer to overcoming the lust does not lie within your abilities. So we need something more. We need Christ and we need the community of the faithful holding up our arms, helping us in that battle, providing the accountability, the accessibility, the support, the nurture, and the uh, conviction in our lives. Leaning on trusted brothers and sisters, giving them, choosing to give them access to our lives, to our deepest, darkest struggles, it helps bring that battle out into the light, out more and more under the Lordship of Jesus. Have you ever felt the weight lift off you when you bring that deep, dark struggle that no one knows and lay it out with a trusted friend and say, I need your help. We need to pray about this. I can't hold this anymore by myself. You must know this. And you take it to the Lord together and you walk away from that like, oh, I feel like a giant burden has been lifted off of me. Because we brought it into the light. We brought it out into, under the lordship of Jesus. And even in that moment, we feel a measure of freedom that we didn't feel before. So take advantage of the community God has placed you in. We're not going to make it on our own. We must trust others enough to let them come close and help bear our burdens. So we look inward in discipline, outward in accountability, and upward in trust. Here's where I want to end. All the while... As we seek to discipline ourselves and as we seek to be accountable to others, we must not forget this fundamental foundational fact. God is love. God is love. He loves you. As Psalm 46 1 says, God is an ever-present help when? In times of trouble, in times of need, God is an ever-present help. If God hated your guts, 
If God spent his whole day just mad at you for your dumb decisions, do you think he'd be this uh, bold in saying, I desire to be your ever-present help in times of need? What does this mean? How should we respond? Well, hear me say this. God is love. Never take your eyes off of Jesus. Plant your feet in the fact of Jesus' death and resurrection, this new life into which he's inviting us. Jesus, God sent Jesus to prove something to us. God sent Jesus to prove his love for us. He sent Jesus to prove his dogged determination to save us. Why? For his glory and for our good. God will be glorified, but he's tirelessly working for your benefit, for your good in this. Our Father desires us to be free. Our Father desires us to discover life to the full. This is what Jesus came to announce in our midst and make possible among us. Jesus is not content to see us muddle through. Jesus is not content to see us struggle with sin and be enslaved by sinful habits. You see, sometimes, I don't know if it's my upbringing or just my religious brain kicking in, but I th sometimes I, I, I think I imagine that God is cracking his knuckles, looking at me like, ooh, this guy, this guy. I mean, he's cracking his knuckles. He's just like waiting to just clobber me for every misstep, for every failure, and there's been plenty. And I just think that God's attitude toward me must be one of just like, oh, I'm so peeved at Adam. Do you ever feel this way? Is this kind of your default? Anyone else? I mean, am I the only one that was raised? <laughs> I don't know. But you just kind of assume that God just doesn't like you very much. He tolerates you because he's God, but really doesn't like you that much. We kind of have this default setting in us that God must be angry. But what if you knew this? What if you knew that God was eager to see you come to him? He was eager to see you enjoy freedom from sin. Imagine that God himself, Jesus himself, desire you to have a heart that is not tangled up in lust. He desires this. He's excited about this possibility in your life. How big of a paradigm shift is it for you to envision God himself cheering for you? cheering you on toward victory, cheering you on toward deliverance from that sin. Is that a shift for you? Is that a change of perspective that understands God not mad, not cracking his knuckles, but like, you got this. I know you can do it. I'm here. We can do this. Just trust in me. That God is cheering for you. How big of a shift is that? Could it be that the whole Trinity is rooting for you? Is there a sense in which God believes in you? Because of what Christ has accomplished and the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, He looks at you and is like, I believe in you. You are capable of far more than you believe. That the whole Trinity is rooting for you, wanting you to succeed. Take a moment, imagine that. Hear the applause of heaven. <laughs> How weird is this? It is weird, I know, but I think it might be a helpful image. To imagine just for a moment that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, they are leaning forward, watching your life. And they aren't mad. They aren't angry. 
Instead, they're looking towards you like, yes, yes, they're clapping their hands, they're smiling, they're wildly shouting, go, go, keep going, keep going, you can do it. I believe in you. What does that do to you? What does that do to your heart? How does that make you feel? And if you knew that, if you believed that, how might you respond? How would you respond if you knew that Jesus came and he told us these things because he wants us to succeed? That God is fully invested in helping us discover life abundant, free, and full. Man, what more has to be said to us? What more do we have to read to believe that God is for us? He is for us. That Jesus came to make it possible. And they're all cheering for us right now. God is. Jesus is. The Holy Spirit. You can do this. I believe in you. Let's go. Keep going. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word. Thanks for the encouragement you find there. I, I love how Jesus comes and just kind of hits us right between the eyes sometimes. Says things that just make our eyes pop wide open like, what? How can this be? Who can do this? No one can do this. No one can live up to these standards. And Jesus says, yeah, you're right. You're right. Because in our religious imagination, we always assume that it's up to us to get it right. But may we place our faith today in the one who came and got it right for us. In Jesus himself. He's the one who took upon himself the weight and damage, the death and destruction of our sin. And he paid the price for that. But in his perfect life, he demonstrated the, 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 the sinless existence to which now we can claim through faith in him. And in his resurrection, God, we know that this is not all there is. That our lives go on into everlasting from now. And that right now we understand in part what it means to be saved and what it means to be uh, free from the power of sin. But a time is coming when we will be fully free. Fully alive in your presence. No longer beset at all by these sins. So God, may we recognize the struggle. And may those temptations the desire to th toward theft, those would serve as reminders of our need for you, that in those moments we would indeed take those thoughts captive and make them obedient to you. Jesus, be Lord of my life, be Lord of my thoughts, my attitudes, and be Lord over all these broken places, the places where I still wander from you, and I pray this for my friends too, the places where we wander from you. God, meet us in those places. Speak deeply to our hearts. Uproot the ingrained sin. Lord, teach us the value of discipline, of accountability, and of trust today. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here that are maybe struggling with this, that this is a hard word to accept, that you would like us, that you would desire us to succeed and be free and to come home. God, I pray that we would be able to hear your heart toward us today. Lord, I pray for my friends who've never trusted Jesus. God, I pray that they'd hear the invitation today that the life of freedom awaits and it starts by faith in Jesus. And so may we all boldly place our faith in Him, trusting that God's own Holy Spirit is drawing us to this moment. So God, make us obedient, we ask in Jesus' name. Hey, we're going to worship just for a few minutes. This is a chance to sit with the Lord. If you'd like to pray with someone, uh, look around. There's maybe someone you could pray with next to you, or I'll stand at the back. I can pray with you back there. But here's the thing. We've got a few minutes here to just sit with the Lord. I've said a lot today. 
We've heard what Jesus had to say. Maybe you need to sit and have a conversation with God today. <laughs>